Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So today... My plan, as I prepared, was to read through all of Matthew chapter 1. The problem is, while I was preparing, I couldn't get past the genealogy. (laughs) Which, for those of you who know, that is comical, because that seems on brand for us around here. Most churches would probably just skip the reading of a bunch of people in a family tree, but not us. Not us. So my plan was to go through a big chunk of Matthew today, but I just couldn't. I I got stopped at 17. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna read Matthew 1 through 17. There's a little bit leading up to that and some table setting that needs to be done to kind of help us understand what the Lord wants us to understand through um, the genealogy of Jesus. Um, So before we get that, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 today. Uh, We'll go there via Matthew 25, but we'll put that up on screen. So if you just want to kind of put your thumb in Matthew 1, we're going to read it shortly. Uh, But I want to uh, just set a little bit of table here on on what this is and what we're doing. Because for some of you, this is a familiar season. When I say Advent, you're like, yeah, when's the incense coming out? How come you're not in the the collar, right? How come we're not, you know, everything's all decorated and uh, uh, there, there, there's some um, history that you have with Advent within the church because within um, high churches, uh, there is a lot of pomp and circumstance surrounded around this specific season of Advent. Um, the, the, the word Advent is actually comes from a Latin word that dates um, way back into the fifth century. Um, it's a history, uh, our, our, the church as a whole, the Christian church has a history with this word and this season all the way back to the 400s. And essentially what it is, is uh, Advent is, it's this Latin word that kind of means arrival or coming. And so dating all the way back to the fifth century, our uh, ancestors, the people who were parts of the faith, um, you know, quite a few years ago, they started celebrating on a regular basis um, the birth of Christ. But the tying in of what they were doing, um, they kind of added uh, kind of rituals or traditions in with it, um, and they started borrowing kind of almost like little shadows or hints of things to bring into the process of worship uh, and kind of this season to kind of trigger memories about what we're supposed to be thinking about and what's most important. And so one of the reasons why during the season you see things like um, Christmas trees in your home or um, lights, um, candles, wreaths, all of these things have been used traditionally through the church as ways to kind of remind us of this story of Jesus. Right, so the tree in your house, we've said this in previous Advents, um, in a way it kind of um, shifts our mind and points us to the, the tree that Jesus hung on eventually. Right, the fact that there's lights in your home, uh, it speaks to a lot of the parables that Jesus taught about being light in a very dark world. 
And so all of these things throughout the history of the church have kind of been borrowed and used, not in an idolatrous way, but almost like in a kind of a reminding way. God had a history through the children of Israel telling them, hey, I don't want you eating this, not because it's bad for you, but because when you sit down at the table and you have to consciously say, I can't have that, why can't you have that? Because the Lord. Does that make sense? So it's not about like, I can't eat this thing. I can't eat this thing because I'm set apart to the Lord. And so the fact that every time I sit down at a meal, there are things I say no to reminds me why I'm saying no to them because I am set apart for something else. And so through Christian history, we have this kind of um, borrowed tradition through Judaism and all up through our history of these things that we kind of take and we, we refashion and, and we use as a way to kind of remind us about the importance of what we're doing here. And so um, traditionally through di- different denominations, this kind of gets celebrated all different ways. And so you have like a really big deal about Advent and then you kind of have us over here on the other side where like I'm not gonna have any candles or you know we're not reading specific readings, but the C of what this is all about is more than just one day of December 25th. So around here, we are a little more casual when it comes to Advent, but we appreciate the season and what it means because what it does is twofold for us. And this is why we celebrate it and this is how we celebrate it. For us, Advent is kind of a twofold um, um, celebration. One part of this season, this Advent season, is the celebration that Jesus showed up the first time, the arrival. He came in a manger, he grew up into a man, he taught, he was sacrificed, he was hung on a tree, he rose again, and that provided for us the way of salvation, right, through faith. That's the celebration part of what we do around here for Advent. Man, we're overwhelmed with celebration because of what Jesus did. But the second part, which is the part that we like to celebrate even more around here, is the preparing. Because Advent means arrival. There was one arrival when Jesus showed up the first time in the manger, but there is another arrival coming. And this time he's not coming in a manger, he's coming in the clouds. And we're told he's gonna split the sky. And he's gonna come back like a righteous king. He's he's returning. And so for us, this is what Advent is. It is equal parts celebration and preparation. Because the reality is this is an exciting time, but it's only exciting in the light that he's gonna do it again very soon. Does that make sense? So this is what for us, this is what Advent means. It is equal part celebration and preparation. It is a um, a looking down at the manger right? We want the overflowing of this season to be everything. We want all the excitement that Jesus came the first time. We want to kind of embrace all the sharing of family time and all the decorations and all the music. We want to rejoice in the fact that that non-believers are singing about our King while they're shopping, right? People who don't want anything to do with Jesus, they can't help themselves. They're singing about our man, our guy, our King, we want to, ex- we, all of that, man, we're excited about that. We're overwhelmed about that, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just about Christmas Day and celebrating the fact that he came one time. He's coming again, and that's the other part. That's the preparation. And so for us, we want the, the joy and the, the, the celebration to overflow, but we also want the preparation and the watchfulness to overflow. That's what we want for this season. 
So we want to prime our hearts to get excited. So it's almost a shifting. We're like, all right, man, this, yeah, this, is, this is all good, right? But this is coming. This is coming. And so if this is coming, then we should probably get ready, right? How many of you guys, on a regular basis, you always keep your house clean? None of, nobody? You know that anticipation when you find out company's coming? Oh, company? Company's coming? And then all of a sudden, you find the desire to want to clean parts of your house that like for all eternity have just been fine for the people who live here. Nobody even thinks about like scrubbing like the soap dish. It's a soap dish. Everyone's got one in their home, but immediately when, when company's coming, it's, we've got to get in there and take and put that. It's like the things that are okay for us on a normal basis all of a sudden are not okay when company comes. All right, so the idea being, hey, company's coming. Jesus is showing up. His arrival is coming soon. And so there is a certain amount of preparation that we should be doing to get ready for his arrival. We should be prepared on a regular basis. I think the best illustration of this is found in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. So I told you we're gonna go to Matthew 1 via Matthew 25. Um, So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If not, we're gonna put it up on the screen. This is the parable of the virgins and the lamps. The parable of the 10 virgins. So I'm reading this because I want this to illustrate the point uh, or the, the emphasis we have to be ready for what's coming. So Jesus is teaching in Matthew 25. He says, and the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, hey, can you? Can you give us some of your oil? Because our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And he said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. What is the point of that parable? Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Five of these women were wise and five were foolish. And the reason why some were wise and some were foolish is because some of them had oil for their lamps and some of them didn't. Now this is a kind of a custom that's kind of lost on us in America because this is not how weddings work in the good old US of A. 
But in a lot of Middle Eastern countries, it's still like this. What happens is you've got the wedding location and the bride and the virgins, or the, the bridesmaids, they're all there. And what's happening is the, 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 the bridegroom, the husband, the future husband and his um, family, they're traveling from house to house. There was a progressive dinner for our ladies last night, kind of the same deal. Um, there's a celebration, there's a building of anticipation. And so they're going from home to home and, and the bridegroom, he's receiving like gifts from families. Man, we're so excited you're getting married. Our family wants to bless you with these nine cows. Isn't that awesome, right? Right, and we got you this gold thing and you can use it on whatever you want. And so you're going from home to home and all these gifts and, it, and the excitement is building and you go to the next home and then you get all these awesome gifts and, all the, and people are speaking blessings over and you're going. And so eventually the wedding gets delayed because the bridegroom was at this guy's house and this guy, he prays really long. He won't stop. Just say amen. Let's go. We got another house to get to. But he's kind of delaying. And so in this parable, they're already at the wedding facility waiting for the bridegroom, but he got delayed. But the beauty about the wedding custom, and we kind of see this, we'll visit this a little bit next week, is that uh, in this culture, the way weddings worked is weddings were arranged for um, many, many years leading up. Like even in childhood, adult, the parents would kind of arrange, yeah, this kid is gonna marry your kid. And as they grow up, they eventually hit a place where they get engaged. And once they're engaged, during that engagement period, the, the husband, the future husband or the future wife can call off the engagement any time, but there hits a point in the engagement where they hit this thing called the betrothal. And once they hit the betrothal, that is a one year mark. From the moment they hit the betrothal until the wedding day, it's one year. And in that period of time, they cannot change their minds. It is a one year preparation and there is no turning back. If they do decide to turn back, legally they are already considered married even though they haven't officiated the wedding yet and in order to get out of that betrothal period there has to be a certificate of divorce which is next week, well this is the reason why when we're gonna read about Joseph, he was betrothed to Mary and he found out that she was with child and he thought the best thing to do was to go ahead and give her a certificate of divorce. How can you give her a certificate of divorce if you're not married? Well, it's because of this custom. So the idea being there was this one year period where they are legally considered husbands and wife, but the actual ceremony hasn't taken place yet. Are you starting to connect the dots with where, how this story kind of impacts us? Right? We're the brides, the bridemaids. We're, 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 we're the church. We're the, we're the ones who Jesus is going to marry. We're the bride of Christ. That's the church. And legally, we are already married to him, but the ceremony hasn't taken place yet. One day, he's going to crack the sky and come back for his church, for his bride, and we're going to have the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to have the celebration. The marriage is going to be complete, but that hasn't happened yet. We're all waiting. So what do you you do as virgins in the waiting period. You make sure you prepare with enough oil. Now what is oil? Oil is anything that fuels your ability to be light in a dark world. You're the lamp. 
You're the light set on a hill for all to see. You're the light in the dark world. The light on the inside of you is Christ. It's shining out to a dark world. And Jesus is saying, in my delay in coming, what I want for you most, this is the only thing I really want for you, is I want you to be a light in a dark world. I want you to let me shine through you. But in order to do that, you've got to stockpile enough oil. You've got to get the stuff that fuels your ability to be light. You've got to get into the word. You've got to be a person of prayer. You've got to commune with the Lord. I had a conversation with one of my sons the other day and he was asking me about hearing the voice of God. He's like, when you pray, how do you know that's God's voice? And I said, well, if we're in a department store and you heard me say, dad, how would you know it's me? He's like, because I know what your voice sounds like. You hang around the place of prayer long enough and you start recognizing his voice. That's the fuel in your lamp. So for us, Advent is exciting because it's an opportunity for us to celebrate what he did the first time but prepare for the, the, what he's doing the second time, his second arrival. So for us, this is not just, it is a time of, man, we're excited, this is a good time, lots of high fives and hugs, but it's also a time to take inventory. What things in this world have got you tethered to this world? What things are cloths or blankets being tossed over you as a lamp so you are not being bright? What things have gripped your heart so um, deeply that you are no longer gripped by the things of God? That you can sit in a worship service like we just had and feel like I, I could feel literally the weight of God. It was almost like when Chad started singing out, like tears started streaming down. I could feel like, oh man, like the weight of what he's singing, like I can feel it in a way almost in my physical body. I feel gripped by this. Does that even happen when you're too busy being gripped by something else? When you're spending your time during worship? What's the latest Facebook? Is there something? Is there a score? What's the latest? (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? That's an extreme situation. None of you would be sitting here right now on your phones, you know, going through social media. Obviously, certainly, that's not a thing we would do. The idea that this world, it's got, a, it's got a hook in our heart and it's just pulling and it's pulling and at the times when God wants, no, I want you, I want you to be captivated by me. I want to, but this thing, this is the season to start cutting those strings. Man, delete it. Delete that app off of your phone. Stop responding to the text message from that person. Just Right now, this is the perfect season. It's Advent. You want to prepare? You want to stockpile oil? It's time to start doing some things that you have been delaying on doing all year. I remember our first Advent series as a church seven years ago. We were sitting around in my father-in-law's living room and we're talking and I was trying to use the analogy of how... um, because it was funny, there was, there was like 25 people sitting around and there was like chairs and couches everywhere. And the idea uh, that I said was like Advent is almost like kind of rearranging your furniture. Because over the years, somebody's like, you know, somebody will post online, hey, I've got this old lamp. Do you want this lamp? Yeah, of course. Like I'd love a lamp. We'll find somewhere for it. And then you kind of take this lamp in. And then this is like someone's like, oh man, I've got this old couch. 
Anybody need a home for the, yeah, I'll take a couch. And then throughout the year, your house is just filled with other people's stuff to the point where you can't walk, right? Now is the season where it's time to start doing inventory of your home, the home being your heart, and saying, man, there's too much furniture in here. There's too much stuff in here. We need to get rid of some stuff so there can be some breathing room, so there can be some walking space. That, that is what Advent is. It's the rearranging of furniture. It's the stockpiling of oil. It's the looking at the manger and being overwhelmed because look, you know, you know the feeling you get when you look at a baby? Oh man, babies? Babies are the best. They're so cute and cuddly, but I don't wanna just sit here and be overwhelmed with the thing that Jesus did the first time. I want to be prepared for when he cracks the sky for that thing he's gonna do the second time. That is Advent. Are you guys ready? All right, go to Matthew chapter one. So Matthew chapter one, I already warned you, we're only gonna read names today. Matthew chapter one, this is Matthew opening up his book with a rather odd way of doing it, kind of starting off with family lineages. And to me, this is kind of the equivalent of like looking at somebody else's family pictures. It's not, not what I would want to do with my spare time. So the fact that Matthew opens up his book with this is, I don't know if it was the wisest choice. But he does it for a reason, and we're going to talk about that reason today. So let's go through the genealogy of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. All right, let me just pause there. <laughs> so that word in Greek, genealogy, it's the same word we would use for Genesis. The origin. So what Matthew is doing here is he's saying the book of the Genesis of Jesus the beginning, the book of the origins. Now he's not saying this is the, this, I'm gonna talk about the time that Jesus became Jesus, like he, he was created. He's eternal, he's always existed in the Godhead. He's always, he's, he's eternal, right? But what Matthew is saying is that, you, hey, Jewish audience, you know how you have the Genesis, the, the account of the beginnings of things? This is the account of the new beginnings of things. What Jesus is going to do is fulfill all the things that came before and going to create the new start of things. So in a clever play of words, he starts his audience off by borrowing some themes that his audience, the Jewish uh, community, is familiar with. And that's primarily who this book was written to. Jewish people who were struggling to accept the fact that Jesus was who he says he was. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, that's interesting. We'll come back to that in a minute. The son of David, son of Abraham. Why call out those two? Well, we'll get there. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, this is exciting because we just read Genesis, right? So a lot of these names are familiar. Like, yeah, I know who these guys are. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's interesting, because Tamar is a woman. And Perez, the father of Hetzron, and Hetzron, the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. 
and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of, wife of Uriah. Who, who was that? Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abiah. And Abiah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. We are now deep into the line of the kings of Israel. For those of you who are playing at home, just a quick little assumption or, or kind of like tracking here. When, when David became king and he passed away, his son Solomon became king. Solomon passed away and his son Rehoboam became king and Rehoboam wasn't a really great king. When Rehoboam took the throne, the nation was one. There was just Israel. But by the time he passed away and his son took over, Abiah, the kingdom had been split. From Rehoboam moving forward, there were two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Imagine the civil war in America with the north and the south. It had never ended, it just split. And you've got North, North America, and South, South America. I'm sure we would have come up with better names than that. But the idea being we weren't one nation anymore, we were two. That's what happened to Israel. Two separate kings, two separate places of worship. And now we're deep, deep, deep into tracing the family lineage of these people, primarily in the south, because the north had no line on David. That stayed in the south in Judah. Let's pick it up in verse nine. Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah. Some of these names are familiar, some of them may not be so familiar. But Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. What is that? Well, once the kingdom split, they had a hard time being faithful to God. The northern kingdom was worse at it than the southern kingdom. And they set up high places of worship and started rejecting God. And God said, I'm going to punish the northern kingdom by raising up this nation called Assyria. And they're going to come in and they're going to destroy the northern kingdom. And the prophecies that took place during that time are recorded in the book of Isaiah. And we're going to study them next summer. But the northern kingdom, by 722, they're gone. No more northern kingdom. Only the southern kingdom stuck around, Judah. And they stuck around for a couple hundred other years, but by the time 586 rolled around, this other nation, Judah wasn't faithful anymore. And this other nation rose up, God rose up this nation called Babylon. You're probably familiar with Nebuchadnezzar. They came in and they destroyed Judah and they burned the temple to the ground and they took every Jewish citizen who was left in the city and they brought them back to be slaves in Babylon. That was the deportation. Verse 12 says, after the deportation, after a certain amount of years, Babylon was overtaken by the Persians. The Persians, a couple different kings rose to power, but eventually a king rose to power 
that saw fit in his heart, God put in his heart to send the Jewish people back and rebuild their temple. So they're heading back to the promised land in verse 12, after the deportation of Babylon. Jeconiah, the father of Shatiel, and Shatiel, the father of Zerubbabel. That's a fun name. That's fun to say, Zerubbabel. There it is. Zerubbabel was the guy who was in charge of rebuilding the temple. A lot of people refer to it as Zerubbabel's temple. So that rebuilt temple, that's, that's Zerubbabel, verse 13. Zerubbabel, the father of Abayud, the Abayud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Etzor. Etzor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ were 14 generations. Now, if you really like math and you go and you start adding up those names, you're gonna find that that last section doesn't actually include 14 names. It includes more like 13 names. So if you wanna have a nice, fun discussion about that, come see me after the service. But a couple things stand out to me just in the genealogy here of Jesus. First, it's different than the genealogy of Luke. If you go to Luke 3 and you read through the genealogy, you see different names, so how is that? Well, Luke's genealogy, a lot of people like to say that Luke's genealogy tracks uh, Mary's family and Matthew's genealogy tracks um, Joseph's family. The problem with that is Luke says specifically, this is Joseph's family lineage. So it can't be Mary's. What most commentaries say, and I, I read seven this week, and most of them agree on this, is that Luke's commentary is an actual parental lineage Father, son, father, son, father, son, through a specific family line. But this one tracks primarily just the promises to diagnose, well not diagnose, but um, declare that Jesus actually came from kingly lineage. lineage. So imagine this, like uh, um, I've got um, a mom and a dad, right? And if you're gonna do a family lineage, um, you get to my dad and then my dad's dad, um, but my dad's dad's mom, their side of the family, they, she, my, my grandmother, she had a dad. And so like I'm German, but I'm also Scottish, right? On my mom's side of the family, I'm Russian. So you can track my family lineage just through the fathers and sons a couple different ways. Right? Or you could say, you could declare, like, okay, if you're just gonna follow me and my dad and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, that's one way, that's how Luke would do it. But Matthew's, he's saying, okay, we're tracking family lineage, but we're also tracking just kingly lineage. How do we declare that Jesus has the right to be called King Jesus? Well, we're gonna follow this through the family tree. And on this one, we're gonna branch off over in this direction because this, um, this mom's father was the one who was the descendant. You following with me? So both of them are the genealogy, both of them are the family line, both of them are the bloodline, but in Matthews, it's just tracking the ones that are a direct connection through the kingly lineage, but also the, the connection through promises, which is the reason why in verse one we see that is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now these 17 verses, they include um, the promises offered to these two guys, but they also include essentially the entirety of Jewish history up to this point. 
Because, um, and this is just a refresher, um, Genesis 12, one through three, there was a promise that God made to Abraham. We read this back when we were doing Genesis 12. He said, go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This is Genesis 12, one through three. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, I will dishon- and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is that? fulfilled, it's fulfilled through Jesus. How are we blessed through the promise of Abraham? Because Jesus. We receive the blessing of salvation through Jesus. He's the fulfillment. But we also see the promise through David. And so what you see here is kind of the rise. At the beginning, you've got Abraham, like the promise is just being uh, made, and then it's kind of, there's this upward turn and things are getting good and things are increasing and the excitement and, and, and eventually they get their own property and they get their own land and they're, they're starting to rule and God is their king and David takes the throne and we have this promise in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'm gonna raise you up and I'm gonna raise up your offspring offspring after you, and you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is a promise God made to David, and he shall build a new house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. So this track, as, as Matthew's laying out, it's like, okay, we got the promise and we got the high point, but after here, it didn't keep going. The people started rebelling and rejecting God and it starts going down and we see it goes down into the deportation. It plunges way down into some of the worst parts of Jewish history and from there, it starts to climb back up again because they, they've left the deportation and they're back in the promised land and they're, they're starting to rebuild the temple and things are starting to get better and it comes back up to the top and it culminates with this person, Jesus. And what Matthew is communicating in the first 17 verses here is that through all of this, the rise and the fall and the rise, guess who was faithful? God. Guess who didn't turn his back on his promises? Even when they were down in the pits? God. Guess who fulfilled every single thing he ever said he would do, even though it took 4,000 years? God. Guess who turns their back on their word 10 minutes after they make it? Us. Guess who says one thing and does something else when a better offer comes along? Us. Guess who doesn't do that? Our God. That's what Matthew is telling, telling us through the genealogies. You've got, you've got easily 2,000 years of history here, and God has not gone back in his word one time. That's the first thing that stands out. The other thing that these verses uh, show to us and kind of shout in an interesting way is that they include scandals and Gentiles and women. Now, it might be lost on us, but for a first century audience, women had no rights. Ladies, you've got no rights in your marriage, in life, your husband passed away, you don't get the property. You don't get to vote, you don't get to have your say, you don't get to talk. You have no rights. That's the system that the world set up. And then Jesus shows up and he spends a his free time hanging around at the well with women who, are, who have, have had relationships with multiple men and the one they're with now is not even 
her husband. Jesus, what are you doing? Who were the first people to see Jesus the morning he rose from the dead? A woman. And so what Matthew is saying here, by including Tamar, who, if you remember back to Genesis, she dressed like a temple prostitute in order to have Judah give her a child, and that child carried on the line to Jesus. Not how I would have done it. (laughs) But it doesn't end with Tamar. You've got Rahab. Who was Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute working in Jericho. And when the people, the people of Israel came into the city and it was time to conquer the promised land, they sent these spies into the city. And where did the spies hang out? At the prostitute's house. Why was that a good place to hide? Because it's not weird to see guys coming in and out of a prostitute's house. It was the perfect place to hide. But her faith declared, she said, look, I know who you are, and I've got the fear of the Lord, and I, and, and I will hide you and protect you if you just protect and hide my family when it's time. And the, the, the situation happened where the children of Israel came, and they're kind of doing the, the whole circles around Jericho. She hides, uh, takes a scarlet cord out, and guess what? The whole city falls and crumbles, and everyone perishes except for her and her family. And guess what? She marries a guy who has a kid, and that kid is in the family line of Jesus. This is wild. This is shocking. The fact that Matthew would name these women, but also recount to a Jewish audience how these people had kids, it doesn't stop there. You've got Ruth, who was a Moabite. The commandment of God in the Old Testament was clear. Moabites are not allowed, they're they're forbidden to be in the temple. They can't come around the people of God. They can't show up for worship. They are unclean people. And she is in the family lineage of Jesus. And then you've got Bathsheba, who had an affair on her husband, and then the king had her husband killed just so that she could be with the one that she loved. Why is that in here? Can we have something a little cleaner? No, because salvation doesn't come clean. It goes through crooked lines and broken people because those are the people who need it the most. Jesus said, I didn't come to heal the the healthy. I came to heal the sick, the broken, the ones who were far off, I'm calling back. I'll leave the 99 to go after this one. That's who I'm here for. And it, 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 it resonates in this genealogy of Matthew, and it is a call to celebrate because what it says is God is bringing in the outsiders, and it's good news because all of us are outsiders. And if you don't think you were an outsider, you're part of the problem. That's the words Jesus had to the Pharisees. Those who thought they were the insiders who had a lock on God, they were the ones who were the problem. They were the whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones who were leading people astray because they felt like they had no need for what God was gonna give them. They're the problem. But those on the outside, the Gentiles, 
this culture, the women, the broken, those who, who, who were born inside but always felt outside, that's who Jesus came for. And so when we read this genealogy, it may just be names to you, but Matthew arranged it in a way to remind us that God is calling in the people that we would consider outsiders. But, but there's another invitation here beyond celebration, and this is what we got to at the beginning. Advent is not just celebration, it's preparation. And for me, when I read these names, I start thinking, my mind starts tracking, where are some other areas where we get a long list of names? And it drew me over to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, this long list of people who were used by God in amazing ways. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you go to Hebrews 11. Now I'm gonna kind of pick it up in the middle. We're gonna go to verse 33. I wanna read through chapter 12 up to verse one. But the reason I wanna read it this way uh, is because I would encourage you to go read the whole chapter. Go home and read all of Hebrews 11, but I'm gonna jump in in the middle. Uh, the writer of Hebrews in this chapter has already outlined the idea that like Abraham did amazing things and the children of Israel believed amazing things. And there, um, he, she just finished talking about Rahab the harlot and he picks up in verse 33 and essentially says, all these people I've been talking about, all these, this long line of family, these people who believed God for great things. Here's, the, like, I don't have time to talk about all these people that, that, that conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. Who are these people? These are the people we just read about in Matthew 1. These are the people that we just listed in, in Hebrews 11. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. Become, they became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight. Women Man, they received back the, their, their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others, man, they suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were mistreated. They didn't fly in personal airplanes in the most expensive of cars. They wandered around in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, of whom this world was not worthy. They were wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You jump over to chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, what's the response to a history of people that live like that? Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is the only proper response to reading about the family tree of people who came before us and treasured God above all else? It's for you to do the same. To stop letting this world tell you what's important and to treasure Christ above all other things. Those people had a race to run, they ran it, and we're here today because of it. How many people in the future will be able to sit in a service and worship Jesus or spend eternity in the throne room of God because God chose fit to use you and say, can I tell you about the king that I serve? Can I just talk to you 
about the guy who changed my life. And the appeal because of the way you live and the, the brightness that you shine because of the oil on the inside of you, it has such an impact in a way where it just changed them. This is, Matthew 1, this is not just the genealogy of Jesus. This is the genealogy of our faith. faith. Th- these are our ancestors and they lived with such amazing faith that they changed the landscape of the world. They lived in such amazing, beautiful ways that God worked through them and the invitation is for us today during Advent, here's what we do. We jump into the deep end. I want that. I want this desire, like, man, these these people, they conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions. They quench the power of fire. Where do I jump in? Where do I sign up? Oh yeah, but it wasn't just all of that. They were also wandering around in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Yes, where do I jump in? Is it here? No, that's the shallow end. Keep going, jump in deeper. That's where I wanna be. I wanna be counted among those who God used in unbelievable ways because he's coming for a second arrival. And I don't wanna be found with not enough oil in my lamp. Are you following? So this isn't just a genealogy. This is an invitation. This is an invitation for you to prepare your race, to get serious about having enough endurance to last till the end. Just the first 17 verses here, Matthew is directing and connecting the royal lineage of Jesus. That's absolutely what he's doing. He's telling a Jewish audience, hey, this guy, he's got the qualifications. He is the rightful king to be who we say he is but he's also fulfilling every promise from Abraham, from from Adam really, to Abraham, to Israel. But it doesn't stop there because for us today, when we read this genealogy, Matthew's not just telling us Jesus is qualified, he's also telling us this is a long list of people who lived in unbelievable ways because God worked through them. Don't you want that too? This declaration, these names are an invitation to not just stare at the joy of his first arrival, to be overwhelmed at what God did through these family lines, but it's an invitation to prepare, to jump into the deep end, to be a part of what God is doing next. And this is my desire in reading this genealogy for you. I want you to celebrate the manger, but I also want want you to feel a pull in your heart to not just stare at it, but to fix your eyes higher. And as you fix your eyes higher and you start staring at Jesus, you start seeing the value of filling your lamp with the oil of abiding in him. And I've been abiding in a lot of things that are not him. And I feel like my lamp is growing dim. So how do I fix that? Well, you can't. You can't do X, Y, and Z. That's the thing he does. But the thing you can do is run to him You can't go to Costco and make a spiritual checklist and say, I need to pick up a couple of these things so that I've got better stuff and I'm stockpiled and ready. No, no, you just run to him and you say, I'm at a deficit. I don't have enough, fill me up. How do you run to him? You run to him in the word. You run to him in prayer. You run to him through through denying your flesh, through things like fasting. You run to him in the ways that the word prescribes us to run to him. And when you stand at the foot of him and you beg, you say, God, fill me. Fill me with your oil. Fill me with your presence. I want to be a light for you. Use me. You're going to be blown away 
blown away at the way that he chooses to do that. So this Advent, I want you to know that he's not done working. This period there at the end of 16 where we talk about the last name where we get to Jesus, that's not where the family tree ends. The family tree is still growing. And you're a part of it. You've been grafted in. You're part of the family tree. And good branches don't sit there and stare at other branches and say, look how much fruit is over there on that branch. No, good branches who've been grafted in start producing fruit on their own branch. And that's what we want from the Lord to do through us. God, make us fruitful in ways that we can't make ourselves fruitful. Fill us up in ways that we can't fill our own self up. So this Advent, I want us as a church to take serious the invitation from the Bible to prepare the next rival of our King. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.